Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Last week, we learned some background information vital to understanding Satan's continued persecution of God's people over the ages, as well as his opposition to Christ. In chapter 12, God revealed three important figures in this story. We saw Israel represented as a woman, pregnant and ready to give birth. We were introduced to the child who would be born from her, the promised Messiah. And we also saw Satan represented by an enormous red dragon whose constant objective was to destroy both God's chosen people and God's son. This red dragon had seven heads which correlated to the prophecies of Daniel about the empires which would dominate Israel in the promised land. Six of the heads represented kingdoms that Satan has used in the past, and the seventh head was a kingdom yet to come, that of the Antichrist. The dragon was also revealed as having ten horns, and as horns are always linked to kingly power in prophetic scripture, these likely symbolize the ten kings associated with the end-time Antichrist. Now, we're going to be learning more about that today as we move into chapter 13, which is really central to the whole book. As we mentioned last week, this chapter introduces the rest of the destroyer's unholy trinity. Having been cast out of heaven, Satan knows that his time is short, and so he is determined to do as much damage as he can. To accomplish that, he delegates his power to two beasts who are the main figures in this chapter. The beast from the sea, we'll soon discover, represents the Antichrist, the political leader, through whom Satan works during that time, while the beast from the earth represents the false prophet, who will work alongside the Antichrist, not only promoting him, but also heading up the world's false religion of the time. Empowered by the dragon himself, this trinity of evil will hold sway over the earth for some time, but their empire will begin to topple as previously loyal nations turn on the Antichrist. Now, I want us to look at a passage in Daniel that really describes this. According to Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, these formerly loyal nations will band together against the Antichrist while he's in Israel where he set up his base. Specifically, Daniel says that reports from the east and the north will alarm the Antichrist, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Daniel also reveals that he will pitch his royal tents of his palace between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. So troubled by news of descent from the east and from the north, the Antichrist's army will assemble between the beautiful holy mountain, which is really a reference to Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and two seas, in other words, between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, in preparation for the onslaught. These coordinates given by Daniel locate the Valley of Jezreel in Israel, also known in Hebrew as Har Megiddo or 
Armageddon, and this is the gathering place for these troops. It is then, according to Matthew 24, verse 30, as the armies of the Antichrist and his former allies gather to fight each other, that the sign of the Son of Man, the sign of Christ, will appear in the sky. The earthly armies will apparently forget their differences and join forces against their common enemy, Christ. However, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will defeat them utterly. And according to Daniel in chapter Chapter 11, verse 45, the Antichrist will come to his end and no one will help him. So with that as our background, then let's turn to chapter 13 to meet Satan's counterfeit Messiah, who is revealed as the beast from the sea. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority." As John begins to relate his vision concerning the arrival of the Antichrist, he sees a beast coming out of the sea, but notice this beast is described as a person. Now, John could have easily called this person the dictator or the political leader, but he uses the symbolism of a beast to convey a richer picture. By calling him a beast, we immediately understand that the Antichrist has some less than human characteristics, and we easily understand how very dangerous he is. John discloses that this world dictator comes out of the sea, which could simply mean that he comes from the west, as the Mediterranean Sea is to the west of Israel on a map. However, in Revelation 17 verse 15, God tells John that the waters he saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So the sea from which the beast arises is likely symbolic, meaning that he comes out of the nations of the earth who are against God and his people. John describes him as having ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Notice how similar this depiction is to John's previous description of the dragon. There are many resemblances between these two, and I don't think that that's accidental. In John 14, verses 6 through 7, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. When we see Christ, we see the Father. Christ reveals him to us and bears his likeness. And in a similar way, the Antichrist bears a marked resemblance to the dragon, for they are one. John will reference these ten horns again in Revelation 17 verse 12, telling us that they're ten kings who've received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. John describes them as kings because that was the authority structure of his day. Today, we'd probably call them officials or leaders of some sort.
The fact that they rule for only one hour means that their authority is short-lived because their power will be relinquished to the evil world leader as he rises to full authority. The important point is that these ten leaders will only receive their kingdoms around the time of the Antichrist and that they rule in some sort of relationship with him because they're called kings with the beast. Notice the many heads of the beast are all associated with blasphemy. Each head carries a blasphemous name. The same name or seven different ones we do not know. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the particular blasphemy of the Antichrist, stating that he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The many heads of the beast will be supporting or even advertising his rebellion. John further describes this fearsome beast in verse 2, saying that the beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And for those of us who studied Daniel before, we'll remember that Daniel also saw the different empires that would come against God's people in the future as being different kinds of beasts. In fact, the empires he saw in his vision were represented by a lion, a bear, and a leopard. John's vision seems to be saying that this beast incorporates all of the powers of the previous empires, which sought to destroy God's people. The final terrible beast that Daniel saw was represented by the Roman Empire, but at one point in Daniel's vision, it transitioned into a picture of this beast of the end times with its ten horns. John sees a further detail in verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? John reveals even more about this end-time world ruler in verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. The Antichrist becomes Satan's mouthpiece against God and his people in the final days. Through some means, he's given the ability and in today's vocabulary, the platform to spread his lies and his slander. For 42 months, he speaks against God, against the place of God's presence, and he slanders all those who live in heaven. We know that the 24 elders and the multitude of white-robed martyrs are living in heaven, but Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians that as believers, even now we too are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even though we're still on earth. And so to say that the Antichrist slanders those who dwell in heaven reveals that he gives all those who belong to God a bad name, no matter where they are. 
But he doesn't only slander God's saints. John says he was given power to wage war against the saints, God's holy people, and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. As the Antichrist's power grows, all the inhabitants of the earth worship him. The people from every tribe, language and nation, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb. I want you to notice what this means. Christ has a register in heaven of those who belong to him called the book of life. And John says that the name of those who worship the beast do not appear there. The conclusion, of course, is that the names of those who do believe in God and who worship his Christ are written in that book, recorded for all time. John also reminds us that the book belongs to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, it was God's plan from the very beginning that Jesus would die in our place as the remedy for man's sin. All of the law of the Old Testament pointed to our desperate need for a saviour. The sacrifices the law demanded were to help us understand what Christ's substitutionary death would accomplish. Because as it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can be reconciled with God the Father. It's only by faith in him that our names can be written in his book of life. And we certainly want our names there as end time events unfold. These verses also tell us something that might be a little difficult to hear, though. John says that the Antichrist is not only hostile towards God's people, but that he is able to get the better of them. The scripture says that he conquers them. And I understand that you might wonder why God allows this. After all, shouldn't God protect his own? But the truth is that God sometimes uses the deaths of his beloved followers to draw others into his kingdom. This is the great truth of Christian martyrdom. The seed of the gospel is very often watered by the blood of the saints. Christian martyrdom is a powerful witness. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is the 40 martyrs of Sebeste. In 320 AD, when the Roman emperor Licinius was persecuting Christians, 40 soldiers of the 12th legion serving near Sebaste in Turkey openly declared themselves to be Christians. Their prefect decided to make examples of them and on a bitterly cold night, he ordered them to undress and to stand naked out on the frozen ice of a small lake. Their commander's intention was that they change their minds about their faith or freeze to death. Fires were lit on the banks and hot baths were drawn so that any of them willing to renounce their faith in Christ could come in from the cold to enjoy warmth and comfort. As the forty sang hymns out on the frozen lake, they were closely guarded by other non-Christian soldiers of their legion who stood on the shoreline. 
After some time, one of the forty wavered in his resolve, and turning his back on his brothers, he came into the fires. However, the other thirty-nine stood resolute, knowing that they would surely die. It was at that point that one of their guards on the shoreline threw off his clothes, declared his newfound faith in Christ, and went to take the place of the one who had turned away. Their number once more complete; those forty died there that night. In the morning, their bodies, some apparently still with faint signs of life, were burned and their ashes thrown into a nearby river. Despite the prefect's intentions, what they did that night served to ignite the gospel, causing it to spread like wildfire through Europe. And now, almost two thousand years later, their story is still being told around the world as an encouragement to God's people. You see, their deaths still make a difference. Verse nine then picks up on a warning that we haven't heard since chapter three, and that's an indication that something very significant is about to be said and needs to be acted upon. He who has an ear, let him hear. If any one is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If any one is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints, God's people. John quotes a passage from Jeremiah fifteen verse two, which reminds us that God's purposes are firm and unchangeable, and that those purposes may often include both suffering and death for many who follow Him. But whatever we may be called to face in the future, we need to remember this: the will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot keep us. Well, the trinity of evil is not yet complete. There is another beast that John wants us to know of. In verse eleven, the beast from the earth will rise up. This beast is also known as the false prophet, a religious leader who will set up and enforce the worship of the antichrist. Look at verse eleven. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Notice this beast, though quite different to the first beast, is also referred to as he. This individual comes out of the earth. His origin is different than the first, and some believe that his coming out of the earth symbolizes him rising up out of Middle Eastern countries. Whatever the case, this one is closely associated with the beast from the sea. John describes him as having two horns like a lamb, and many think these horns symbolize a different kind of power than that of the kings we saw earlier. You see, because this beast's authority is religious and not political, the fact that there are two horns could be very significant. To see this, we need to understand that there were two roles that Christ fulfilled in His work and ministry on earth: prophet and priest. He spoke God's word to the people with power as a prophet, and He did the work of a priest, reconciling people to God as their advocate. It has been suggested that, in an attempt to replicate. 
or counterfeit Christ's ministry, this beast operates in a similar dual authority, acting as both false prophet and priest for the Antichrist, hence the two horns. This beast appears very gentle and lamb-like. He appears to be harmless and even peaceable in the way that he exercises his power and authority. However, though he looks like a lamb, he cannot hide his true nature because he speaks like the dragon who empowers him. Jesus warned us about people like him when he warned in Matthew 7 verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Though he may appear harmless, the beast from the earth operates with all of the same authority as the first beast. Verse 12 begins to describe his religious focus. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. The false prophet, using his authority, causes all people on earth to worship the Antichrist, whose fatal wound had been healed in an apparent resurrection. Notice that he also performs great signs and is able to mimic some of the miracles that we know the two witnesses were able to do. And this is surely not surprising because in the days of Moses, the Pharaoh's magicians also had been able to duplicate some of the signs and wonders that Moses did. For example, when Moses threw down his staff and it turned to a snake, theirs did too. When Moses turned water to blood, they were able to do the same. They were not able to do everything that Moses did, but initially they were very convincing. And here, in a similar way, the false prophet is also able to deceive the people who don't know God. They will totally believe him and his works. According to verse 14, one of the false prophet's main objectives is to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and also to force people to worship him. He was empowered by Satan to bring the image to life. He gives breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak. Now, whether this is another counterfeit miracle or if it's accomplished by technology, we do not know. But surely this is the abomination that causes desolation. 
The image speaks and causes all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Those who worship the Antichrist are then made to receive a mark of loyalty to him on their foreheads or on their right hands. Now, obviously, this mark is Satan's counterfeit of the seal with which God marks his own. It appears that some sort of force is used here to get people to accept the mark. But because the mark is linked with worship, the element of conscious choice is also involved. On some level, these people will choose to bow to the pressure, to give in to the coercion and receive the mark. We always have a choice. Mind you, refusing won't be easy because having the mark will determine people's ability to buy and sell. Without it, people will not be able to eat. We saw this earlier at the breaking of the third seal in which a great famine was unleashed on the earth. And I mentioned then that a lack of food might be used by the Antichrist to force people into acts of loyalty. Show the party card and you'll get food. Refuse to join and you won't be able to eat. Of course, in this case, it'll be show the mark and you can eat, but refuse it at your peril. We can't be sure what this mark will actually be, and every generation has had its own ideas. In the past, people thought it could be something as simple as a tattoo, which would be a cheap and easy method of marking large populations. Many today wonder if it would be a microchip under the skin, which is a type of technology that health organizations have already approved of for use in humans as a way of storing a person's medical records. And if the Lord tarries, there may be even more ideas put forward. Though we cannot be certain as to what or how the mark will be received, we do know that it will be crucial to functioning in the world economy and it will be a sign of allegiance to the Antichrist, the world leader of that time. John goes on to warn in verse 18, This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it is a man's number. His number is 666. Over the years, many people have tried to work out what that might be, and they've tried to match numbers with the alphabet in order to come up with a name that could match a total of 666. But if you ask me, I believe that this really is wasted effort, because even if the letters could be matched to the right numbers, we don't even know if the name or the alphabet is English. John refers to it as man's number, and we know that man was created on the sixth day of creation. So perhaps it would be better to see this number of 666 as an ultimate representation of everything about man that falls short of God's perfection, which we know is represented by the number seven. So you might say that 666 represents a trinity of imperfection. As God reminds us, though, this is something that requires wisdom not a calculator.
What is key, however, is that by the time people are forced to take his mark, there'll no longer be any doubt as to the identity of the beast. The lines will be clearly drawn, and to worship him will be a direct rejection of the living God. Revelation 12 and 13 have really been an intense look at the work of Satan and his unholy trinity. Thankfully, Revelation 14 will change the perspective. There, John will lift our sight to the other side of the story, the work of God and his angels and his witnesses. There, we will be wonderfully reminded that the story is not finished yet. God is still in control and he will bring his plan to completion. I look forward to discussing that next time and I hope you do too. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.